Lord Jesus, we live on this earth and there is suffering. But Lord, today I pray that we would see the reality of living in light of our reward. Because it is great. And it is worth it all. And Lord, if you call us to sell ourselves into slavery for the sake of the gospel, may we consider it a privilege. Open our hearts today as we, as we try to look across the chasm to the other side. And try to, try to, try to visualize the, the, the glories that are there. And so live our lives in light of those glories. Open our hearts this morning. Lord, my, my words are feeble, but your spirit is strong. So I pray that we would hear today your voice, and only your voice, for the sake of your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So wow, Christmas is over. Everybody open gifts this week? Good. How many of you knew what was in the gift, at least one of those gifts, before you opened it? Quite a few of you. Does that ruin it for you, or does that uh, increase the anticipation knowing that you're going to open this thing? Does it ruin it? Increase the anticipation? Okay, one of you cares to answer. <laughs> the rest of you are thinking, I didn't get any gifts this week. Is it, was it Christmas? What it? All right, let's, let's say that you know there's a diamond ring in one of those presents. All right? Sorry, guys, this is illustrations for the ladies. Uh, there's a diamond ring in one of those gift-wrapped boxes. You know it's coming. You've known it's coming. You've been told it is. Now, you don't know the details. You don't know if this is a one-carat diamond or a 15-carat diamond, or a 1-15th-carat diamond, or if it's really a CZ, but, but you know that there's a ring coming. Now, now, does that increase the anticipation, ladies? Or does that ruin it? Increases. If you know that there's a ring coming, you start living in light of that reality. Maybe you've known for several weeks that this is going to be the, your gift. And you start living your life based on the reality of a gift that is coming. You know, the, the life of following Jesus is like that. For those of us who are followers of Christ, we know we have eternal life. We know we have heaven on the other side. We know it's coming and we, we talked a little bit about it. You saw some quotes. You wrote down some things and some ideas. But we don't know exactly what it will look like. In fact, we can't even, we can't even, I don't think we can begin to comprehend how amazing it is. I think God has given us in his word enough pieces to, to whet our appetite. But I don't think, I don't think we can even fathom the glories and the magnificence of it. But we do live in light of that expectation. Scripture tells us that on the other side, that Jesus is preparing a place for us. 
I mean, think about that. Jesus himself is preparing your future home. Now, I've done some building, but I don't think it's anything like what he's building. We will be forever in the very presence of Jesus. Yeah, like Todd said, our quiet time is going to take on a whole new dimension. It won't be opening your Bible and praying and falling asleep and waking up and saying, okay, oh, read the passage again because I forgot what I just read. It's going to be sitting down with Jesus face to face and talking and sharing and laughing and crying. And I have a hunch that there won't be any need to make an appointment. We'll have perfect glorified bodies. No more sin, no more temptation, no more sickness, no more showers, no more hair products. That will be finished. No more tears. The streets that are paved with gold, or at least they are so beyond comprehension that the best John could do when he wrote about it was saying, these are streets paved with gold. Scripture says that we will reign with Jesus. We will have some kind of ruling authority in heaven. I have no clue what that looks like. There's crowns. There's rewards. And so we have a lot of these individual facts. But there is so much we don't know, so many details, so many questions. But we can still live in eager anticipation of what's coming. Yes? Our text today is Romans 8. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Turn there if you have a Bible. If you don't, I think you're out of luck because I don't see anybody up there passing out Bibles. Uh, actually, they just jumped. Sorry about that, guys. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will bring you one, and you can keep that Bible if you choose. Anybody need a Bible? Raise your hand. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. There's a hint at our future glory. We're, we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. You see that? That's this side. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. That's the other side. Verse 18, for I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We're going to come back to that verse several times. And we need to just really wrap our hearts and minds around that. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, are they real? Do you suffer? Is life a hassle? Do you get sick? Are there inconveniences? Do relationships get broken? Yes. But those sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory that's on the other side. Now, today is the fourth and final installment of, our, of the series that we've been doing on the Incarnation uh, for the last uh, three or four weeks. Josh and Terry and Todd have taught us about Christ's Incarnation. We've been looking at the reality of that. God himself, in the second 
person of the Trinity, crossing that ultimate chasm and becoming human flesh 2,000 years ago, born as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem. It's what we celebrate, it's what a Christmas celebration is all about. And how that act of incarnation, that act, that act of, of, of God himself becoming a human being, becoming flesh, paved the way, made it possible for Jesus to take away our sin, provided a way for us to be forgiven, to be saved a new life, to experience victory in this life, to, to cross over these chasms of sin and temptation and death. And today in our final In our final installment, we're looking at what is on the other side of these chasms. What's on the other side of these chasms that we face in life? These chasms of suffering and temptation and struggle and, yes, eventually death. We are to look to our reward because our reward is on the other side. We're to endure these things in life. We're to even embrace these things in life. Because we know what is coming on the other side. My question is, do we? Do we embrace the things of this life? The struggles, the trials, the difficulties? Do we embrace them because we know that they aren't even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed on the other side? You see, we're not to put down our roots in this earth too deeply. This, this, this earth, this life is just a shadow of what's coming. If we could think in terms that this life is just a shadow and, and the other side is the reality. You saw one of the quotes up here from uh, C.S. Lewis. You know, sometimes as we go through life, Things just don't seem right, even when things are right. Things just seem skewed. You ever have one of those days where you wake up and you're grumpy and you have no reason why? Or have those feelings in your heart and soul like, something's wrong, but I don't know what it is. Am I the only one? You there? Something's wrong, but, but nothing's wrong. I think those are the groanings of this body yearning for the life that we were created for. And it's not this life. This life is temporal. This life is shadowlands. Our purpose here is to prepare for that life. To take as many people with us as we possibly can to tell as many others out there that this isn't the reality, that this is just the shadows, and that that's the reality. Our purpose is to be all things to all people so that we might save some and see them go with us. Our purpose is to live to the glory of God and die to self and die to our dreams and die to our wants and our will so that we serve Him and glorify Him and reflect Him to the world. We're not here to accumulate wealth and comfort and pleasure for our own sake. If God so calls us, I mean, can we even comprehend selling ourselves into slavery to go to some obscure island that 3,000 people who've never heard the gospel might hear? The best that we know is we don't know what happened to those two men. 
The end of the story is not written as far as we know on this earth. But when we get on the other side, we'll find out what those two guys did. We're to live for the reward. If I can drill one thing into our brains today, including mine, it's that we are to live for the reward. Now, does that sound wrong? Live for the reward? Does that sound self-serving? Nobody cares to venture a guess. You know, at some level it might, except Scripture tells us repeatedly that that's what we're supposed to do. And we're going to unpack some more of this. So I want us to see this truth today from several different angles. This, this learning to live with an eternal perspective, this live in such a way that we're thinking long-term, that we're thinking in light of heaven. How do we live every day putting up with the sufferings and trials of this life in anticipation of what's on the other side of the chasm? How do we do that? And, and I just have a, a several, uh, I guess you could call them points or thoughts, but, but I'm calling them several different angles of looking at this perspective that hopefully will help us to see it. See it. One of the first examples I thought of was pregnancy. Now, I don't have a lot of experience with that, uh, personally, other than I watched my wife go through it twice. And pregnancy, for most people, and I can really only speak of our own experience, is hard. At least it was for us. Childbirth is hard. There's suffering. There's pain. There's inconvenience. And there's waiting. And waiting. And waiting. We waited 72 hours for our first child to be born once labor started. It was harder on me than it was on my wife, and she would agree with that if you ask her. You think, that's stupid, you wimp. She was ready to keep going. But when those kids were finally born, and I will never, ever, ever forget that moment in the hospital where the nurse handed my daughter to me. And then a few years later, my son, it was worth it. It was worth it. We, 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 we lived through all that for the reward of that new life. Those two kids are now grown adults living their own lives and for various reasons not able to be home at Christmas. Was that hard? Yes, of course it was. But we could endure that separation knowing that the day is coming when on the other side we will be with them for all eternity. We'll never have to say goodbye to our kids again. We won't have to worry about FaceTiming them and, oh, you're, you're right there, but I can't hug you, and it's so hard. That won't be an issue anymore. So we live for the reward. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time the sufferings of, of pregnancy, of parenting, of relationships are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Another example that I thought of was Jesus himself and how he endured the chasm of leaving 
the throne room of heaven, leaving the glory of being at the right hand of the Father, of being uh, God himself in all the glories of heaven that we can't even begin to comprehend, he left that and crossed the chasm into humanity, implanted in Mary's womb as a, as a seed, as a fetus, grew, born, an infant, a young boy, a young man, grew up, public ministry, betrayed, rejected, beaten, tortured, and finally illegally murdered. He could endure all that. Hebrews 12.2 says, for the joy set before him. Does that sound like a joyful life? Does selling yourselves into slavery to some remote island sound like a joyful life? That's not what we consider joy. But, but Hebrews 12.2 says that who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, laughing at all of the shame and the suffering and the trial and the difficulty and the hurt and the rejection that went with that, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, why could Jesus do this? Because he looked to the reward. He lived for the reward. What was the reward of his life and death, the incarnation on this earth? The reward was he could provide salvation for you and me. The reward was that now there was a way for our sins to be permanently removed and forgiven and for us to cross the chasm into eternal life with him. The reward was that he did that for me and you. And we are so unworthy. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How hard is it to share your faith with another person? To talk about Jesus with your neighbors? I, I'm assuming it's hard for most, if not all of us. Man, I struggle with it. I'm aware of it. I'm conscious of it. I'm trying to build a relationship with my one neighbor so that I can at least have an opportunity to share the gospel and get it in there. But it's so easy when I'm busy to say, oh, you know, hi, bye, talk to you later. You know, here's your trash can. Here's my trash can. It's like, oh, man, I should, have, I should have gone a little bit further and asked him a few more questions. And it's hard. And if we can call that suffering, and it's almost embarrassing to call that suffering, Compare that suffering with the joy of knowing that he could spend all eternity in the presence of Jesus because I shared the gospel with him. Will it be worth it? Will I get to heaven and say, oh, you're here? Man, I don't know if it was worth it, though. You know, I gave up so much of my garage time to talk to you. I'm not sure it was worth it. Well, okay, well, whatever, it's done now. You know, is that going to be our attitude? I don't think so. That wasn't Jesus' attitude. He didn't get to heaven and say, God, Father, why did, you, why did you make me do all that? Man, that hurt. That was so hard. Another angle that we could look at this from. We could endure... Because all the sacrifices that we make 
are not really all that bad. Now let me clarify that as we face sacrifices and issues in life, they are huge mountains. As we approach them from the front, they can be insurmountable obstacles. I don't want to minimize in any way how hard it is to die to your own desires and your own dreams. Some of the most grueling, intense battles of my soul and my life were, was the struggle to die to my dreams. Things that I wanted. Things that I thought identified who I was. I don't want to minimize the sacrifice that our missionaries make by not being able to have their kids with them for Christmas or not being able to have their kids with them for grandparents or being away for the holidays. I don't, want to, I don't want to minimize the sacrifice that you might make as a businessman or a businesswoman in running your business according to God's principles, not the world's make all the money you can, who cares who gets in the way principles. Those can be difficult decisions. What I am saying, though, is that in the end, as we look to our reward, on the other side, it will not seem like a sacrifice at all because of the glory that awaits us. David Livingston was a missionary to Africa in the mid-1800s. And he was giving a speech at Cambridge University regarding leaving the benefits and the comforts of, of home in England in order to invest his life into the deep, dark, unknown, presumably dangerous interior of Africa. Let me read this extended quote. He said this, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger. Now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. End of quote. Man, I want that attitude. Man, I want to live that way. Rather than dwelling on all the things I had to give up to follow Jesus, all the sacrifices I've made in my life, all the money I haven't made, or all the places I haven't lived, or all the things I haven't done, and blah, 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 poor pitiful me. Rather than dwelling on that to say, I never made a sacrifice. For the joy of serving and following Jesus, I never made a sacrifice. Another angle that we can, we can uh, take to, to look at how we live presently in light of the glory that awaits us is this. We can endure poverty or loss or a smaller salary or a smaller house 
or, or not as prosperous a life because what we have coming is so much better. We don't need to get ahead in business success or financial success or material success. We don't need to worry about that stuff. We don't need to worry about how many, how many boats and cars and vacation homes we own because we can look ahead to our possessions on the other side. Now this, this smacks at our pocketbook. This smacks at our entitlement mentality. This smacks at our, at our rights as Americans. After all, we deserve a big house. We deserve a five-star vacation. We deserve an RV. We deserve, I, this was mine, my own piece of private property. This is my property. There's no such thing as private property in America. You rent it from the tax office. <clears throat> so that's a, that's a false dream. We deserve a husband or a wife, and we deserve 2.5 kids, and we deserve all this stuff. But look at Hebrews 10.32. Let, let me read this passage, Hebrews 10.32. But recall the former days. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a, a group of believers here. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Did you see that? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You joyfully accepted government officials coming to your door and illegally stealing your home and your possessions. Does that raise the hackles on the back of anybody's neck? You joyfully accepted that. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You may receive the reward. We live for the reward. We live for the other side. We don't live for what we have now. These first century believers could endure the suffering and public humiliation, the confiscation of their property, because they knew they had a mansion, a home built by Jesus himself, possessions that were eternal and non-corruptible. So it's like, guys, if you want my stuff, take it. Now you have to maintain it. Is that our attitude? Is that how we live? If our government officials showed up and evicted us and took our stuff, would we accept it because we knew it was just a shadow of what we have coming? God has shown us just enough of what's coming on the other side that it provides encouragement and perspective for us to live in light of the curveballs that life throws at us. Hebrews 11, turn over to one chapter. Hebrews 11:24. Let's look at Moses and how he handled this. Hebrews 11:24 By faith Moses when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing 
rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was living in light of his reward. Now Moses grew up as royalty. He grew up as the daughter of Pharaoh's or the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was living like we all dream of living, or at least some of us might dream of living. He had more money than we could ever imagine being able to spend. He had servants to do everything he wanted. All of his food was prepared. He had all the best food, all the, all the leisure activity. He didn't have to work for a living. He had a huge mansion in a gated community. He had all the latest Apple tech products. I mean, when the newest iPhone came out, he had it. Big, big screen TVs. I mean, all of the latest tech stuff that money could buy. Invitations to all of the most important parties. I don't know what those are. Kardashian parties or something like that. But he had invitations to those. He was the guest of honor at those. He had this five-car garage with Beamers and Maseratis in it. He had everything that, 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 humanly speaking, we could want. He also had political power. He had influence. He could control and shape legislation. He had the ear of Pharaoh, the emperor of the land. And so Moses analyzed his situation. He had some options. The treasures of Egypt, the reproach of Christ. The treasures of Egypt, the reproach of Christ. And you know what Moses picked? He picked the best thing for himself. He chose what was best. Wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't you pick the best option if you had those kinds of options? Wouldn't you? Are you being noncommittal or you think this isn't interactive? <clears throat> Would we not choose the best options for ourselves? Thank you. Boy. And so he chose the reproach of Christ. He chose being mistreated and persecuted and betrayed and called names. He chose poverty. No more invitations to parties. No longer had the ear of Pharaoh. Why did he choose that? Because he could look across the chasm and he could see what awaited him over there and it was a no-brainer. He was looking to the rewards that were waiting for those that faithfully, selflessly follow Christ. Another angle that we can endure and live for the reward because Christ has eliminated the fear and the power of death. I suppose death is man's greatest fear. So if the fear and the power of death is gone, then the fear of anything is gone. Right? If, 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 if our greatest fear is removed, then we have nothing else to fear. And, and we can risk anything and everything for the sake of Christ. We can quit living safe. We can get out there and risk it all because they can't do anything permanent to me. They can laugh, they can mock, they can beat me, they can take away my house and my property, they can take away my family, but they can't take away what's waiting for me on the other side. can't take it away. Live for the reward. 
Another perspective on living for the reward is to train ourselves to think eternally. We think so horizontally and so temporally, we need to, we need to train ourselves to think about what's on the other side. And, and, and we do that by investing in eternity. We care about those things that we invest in. If you put your money into a company, you care about that company. If you put your money into eternity, then you care about eternity. Matthew 6 says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then in verse 21 it says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Put your treasure in eternal things and you will grow and care more and more about eternal things. Maybe the best way for us to understand how to live in light of the other side is to hear from someone that knows she's about to cross over to the other side. Someone who is facing this great chasm of death without fear. I want to introduce you to Terry McVeigh this morning. Terry and her family have been coming to Cornerstone for several months. And I want you to hear her story about facing these chasms. Hiya, I'm Terry, as you said. Um, just so you know, with my accent, it's actually not from here. It's, it's a real mongrel accent. It's from New Zealand, Australia. And for the last 15 years, I've been, I've been living in England, and we moved here. We moved here in August. Um, but what, what I'd like to, to do with you in, in these next few minutes is perhaps, if I could take you on a journey that has, that has shown me that... Um, well, to take you on a journey from thinking that I was in control of, of my life, my situation, to surrendering it all to God and to handing it over to Him. Um, so to start with that, I need to give you a bit of a backstory and then the forward, the forward story of that. Um, in, in August of 2011, um, I... I found a lump on my breast, and it was quite a large lump, the size of a, of a golf ball. Um, and I had biopsies and tests, which I did on my own because I was tough and I could, I could do that. Um, and then from that, we found that I, had, um, that I had breast cancer. And we had to tell our girls quite quickly that, um, that, that I had cancer. My, my youngest daughter was 11, and it was her sports day, so we had to hear that news and then go to her sports day with smiles and cheering her on and things, and then that evening tell, tell her and her older sister, who was 14 at the time, that, that I had cancer. And, um, and when you look at it from a kid's angle, even from a parent's angle, having to say those words, it's, it's quite a frightening thing to say to children when there's all this this unknown ahead of us. Um, the ironic thing in, in this whole story is that there were two fears 
that I had more than anything in my life, and that was my first fear that I've had since I was a little girl, was that my faith would be tested. Um, I, was, I was terrified that, you know, as a kid I read stories and stuff like that of people's faith being tested. And, um, and I, I didn't grow up as a Christian, I didn't become a Christian till later, but I, I always had those, I, I grew up in a, in a churched home, but I wasn't a Christian then. Um, but I'd always heard the stories of, of people's faith being tested. And in my mind, that came in the form of guys with balaclavas, like beating me and, and, and telling me to give up my faith or to, to test my faith. And heaven help, if something was going to happen to my girls, that if I had to, to be tested for my faith, that, that they would be hurt in some ways. I remember always thinking, I don't know that I could ever do that. I wonder, would I be strong enough to, to do that? And my other big fear was, was of getting cancer. Um, that the, the six people that I had seen go through cancer, every single one of them had died within a year of being diagnosed. For me, that was terrifying, that I, cancer for me equaled, equaled death. Um, and I, I have to be honest that, that when, when I first caught cancer, my, my faith was pretty stagnant. I was going along to church, I was going along to Bible study, but I wasn't growing. I wasn't, um, I wasn't doing really anything with, with my faith. Um, my reaction to, to that cancer um, was, I will do this. Even though that I was saying, everything in my head was saying, and, and I was verbally saying to people, God's going to get us through this. God's going to get us through this. Everything that I was conveying to other people was, I will get us through this. I, um, I said to my husband, we cannot rely on other people. We've, we've got to do this. And for that, for me, I went into lockdown mode. And I bought a freezer, and I made 287 meals. So that we did not have to rely on other people to get us through. That's, that's the way I was. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't want to be dependent on anyone. And I think if I'm honest, that also meant God. Even though I was saying, God's gonna get us through, if I'm really honest, it was, I'll, I'll do this, God, you do everything else, and I'll, and I'll do this. Um, one of the things in those, in those first few weeks and for, for several months, is I would wake up at night in tears, in absolute tears, worried about my girls, as to what would happen to my girls. Because in my mind, cancer was death. Even though we'd been told that it was something that we could get, get through, in my mind, cancer was death. And I worried for the first time in my life, what will happen to my girls? What will happen to my girls if I die? Will they become women of faith? Will my husband be up to the job of looking after them? Who will be there to, um, to prepare them for their marriage, for, um, for their grandchildren, for my grandchildren that I will never see? All those things, as, as a normal mum, went, went through my mind. Um, and I, I felt in my, in my mind that I was out of control. Um, and I saw the reaction, that was my reaction to, to cancer, and I saw the reaction of other people. 
um, who we, we were quite open and honest that I, that I had cancer. Um, I didn't want it to be something that was whispered about um, and for my kids to, to feel that, um, that they couldn't talk to their friends or something about. And the reaction from other people surprised me also. And that was um, on several occasions. Like, you, you hear about it, but you don't, you don't ever think it's, it is for real. People literally walked across the other side of the road. We were in a, in a small village um, in England, and people literally walked across the other side of the road to avoid any conversations or anything. Because for them, I was the face of death, and that was... And that's scary. I, I was the face of something that I didn't know their history um, with cancer. I didn't know, I didn't know. And I remember being very, very hurt at the time, but understanding it too, because I'd been there too. Um, so um, so in, in all of that, um, our, our daughter turned off our freezer um, and it was off for two days that I had these 287 meals. <laughs> and I tell you, I don't think I have ever cried so much in all my life. <laughs> um, my husband will tell you that I was an absolute, my kids just got out of the house. They knew that, that I was in a bad place. Um, and why? Because the control was taken. I, that was my way of doing it, and the control was now was now out of my hands. Um, and even then, I I couldn't surrender it all to God. I couldn't I couldn't hand it all over because I I didn't even think that um, I didn't even think about it. So after that, I had um, I had my first operation. Um, which it should have taken three to four hours, but because of the extent of the cancer, um, it, took, it took six hours, um, and my husband was in, in quite a panic after that, um, you know, not knowing what was going on. Um, but each time, I, and I had to have a second operation after that, which I was very upset about because they hadn't got all the cancer the first time. And each time after those operations that I came round in, in recovery, the first thing that I always said was, I've got, to, I've got to get my girls, I've got to get my girls. So they were always the firm, for, for foremost thing in, in my mind was to look after, was to look after and to take care of our girls. Um, by the second time that I had my operation, the, the nurses from the first time said to, to some little guy that was, that was there, it's okay, she did this the last time. She's, we don't have to phone her husband. He's picking up the girls. There are no, she doesn't have to go out after this and pick up the girls from school. They're going to be okay. Um, I had to go to hospital um, each time for... I, 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 so I was scheduled to have, have six chemos, um, and every time that I had chemo, my body couldn't cope. Um, and as my, my oncologist and the whole team of doctors that I, that I had at the time um, just kept saying, we have never come across a person like you where the cancer, uh, where, where, the, where the chemo has, has done this to people. Every single time I was hospitalized and for the cancer was, it, the, the treatment was supposed to be every three weeks, it, it ended up being every four weeks and then because it was going so badly, um, I had to give myself injections 
And my oncologist, I remember at the time, saying, it will bring your blood cells up beautifully and we'll be able to do the, um, you'll be able to have your, your, your injections and infusions. I had nine syringes this size, just, and I had a port here, and it was pumped into me. Every time they couldn't do it by a drip because it would take days, um, they had to do it by, by this, and it took an hour to do these, to do these nine massive injections. Um, and, but I remember her saying, after giving myself these injections for a number of weeks, it'll bring your bloods up beautifully, and you'll be able to have your chemo, and there, there won't be any problem. Well, that time, it didn't work. It made my bloods go down even more, and I had to wait five weeks for, for the chemo that time. Um, my body just couldn't cope. Um, and after that, that third chemo, I remember saying to my husband, I can't do this. I can't, I felt like Seinfeld, I can't and I won't um, do this anymore. Um, but everybody around me was saying, you've got to do it, you've got to do it, because everybody thinks that chemo is, is the way to go. And, and I had decided, with my husband's support, that I wasn't going to do this any longer. And on the way to a netball game with my daughter, who was 14 at the time, she was in floods of tears, which is very unlike this, this daughter of mine, and said, Mummy, would you do it? Would you do it again? Would you do it again? And I just said, I can't. I can't, sweetheart. It, it will kill me. The next time I do chemo, it will kill me. And with floods of tears, she said, but mummy, if you don't do it, and if you die in the next year and a half, I will always, always ask the question, what if she did it? What if she finished chemo, would she still be alive? And so I went on and did the fourth chemo, and I nearly died. <laughs> I can remember everything. I was in an isolation room on my own, and everything around me, all the monitors were crashing. Um, my heart rate had gone down, and I remember looking at them with it all going down and this flurry of nurses around me and thinking, finally it's over, I don't have to do this anymore. And I was brought back to life, <laughs> and I'm back. Um, but it was then, and only then, that I was able to properly say to God, I can't do this anymore, I can't, I can't do this you're gonna to have to take over. And it was then in being vulnerable, not just to God, but to other people, that I became real. That, that I became fixed on eternity and fixed on, on not what I could do, but on what God could do. And I remember just feebly praying those words in the hospital room on my own, not my will, but yours. Not mine, but yours. So, so we were able to, um, so, so I went on and had radiation and things, but after that, after, that, um, after that last chemo, because I was able to be vulnerable for the first time, um, I had a bunch of women from church make meals for me for a month, though I had still all these meals in the freezer. I was able to accept those meals. I was able to accept lifts from people that I had, I had a month of radiation and had to go, and it, was, it wasn't like I have, it, I have radiation every morning now. Um, it wasn't like this time. It took, would took th between three and four hours each time, and I had a different person every time who was able to take me to the hospital for that. But because I was able to be vulnerable in my weakness, 
God was able to be strong. In my weakness, other people were able to, to be Jesus in skin for me. Um, so we got the all clear in 2012 in August, and my husband made a decision to move to this country. He accepted a job with Riot Games in Santa Monica, and, um, and so he moved here, and we were, life was, life was pretty peachy. We'd ticked off the list that we'd gone through a bit of a hard time. God got us through it. We're on it, we're set, we're on our way. And then three months after that all clear scans, um, my cancer came back. And this time we were told it was terminal and, um, and that this is something that I would, would die of. Um, it came back in my, in my shoulders, in my sternum, in my spine and in my hips. So for the last 18 months, um, until we moved here in August, I'd been going through infusions and injections and radiotherapy, radiation and stuff. And I have to say that in each of those steps, it's been these last couple of years since being re-diagnosed that I've really, really seen the promises of heaven. And to know that God fully is trustworthy, he is reliable, and he is faithful. He has promised me that there will be a place in heaven. In John 14, Jesus says, I will prepare a way for you. I will prepare a home for you with me in heaven. Can you imagine what that's going to look like? For me, it's going to be, I'm a sewer. There's going to be a sewing room, and I'm going to never have to buy fabric. There's going to be a needle on that machine that will never blunt. There is going to be, you know, like the, my, my cutting thing is, is, never going to be, is never going to be blunt. There is going to be, I love baking and, and cooking. There is going to be a kitchen that has every gadget known to heaven. And, I, and I'm going to never have to clean up in the kitchen anything. It's going to be, it is going to be awesome. There's going to be coffee shops where I can hang out with my friends and talk and laugh and comfy sofas that, that we can just, you know, have, have a great time with. The reality of heaven for me now is so real. And particularly in these last, in these last couple of months. We moved here in August, um, just a few months ago, and four weeks later, I was told, I was told in March, firstly, we were told in March that, that my cancer was stable and that if it stayed in my bones, that, um, that I would have five to ten years. We moved here on that decision, um, the girls and I. Um, we, we were going to stay back at home, but now we moved here on that decision. And four weeks after moving here in August, we were told, unbeknown to us, that it, it had happened, that I have cancer in my lungs and in my liver now. And not just a little bit, but a lot. Um, and so those, those dreams that we had for that five to ten years have been have have not just been brought forward we've had to let those go we've had to I've had to let go again those those dreams of seeing my daughters walk down the aisle to hold my grandchildren and to um, to even see them come to faith probably they are they're very shaky in their faith and don't know that that they can actually believe that there is a God who does this to their mum. Um, and then five weeks ago, 
I was told that the, the cancer was going even more. That at the moment that I should be, according to my oncologist five weeks ago, very, very, very ill at the moment. That, and she was trying to get me to give cancer, uh, to give chemo a go for one last shot, but I, my body can't take it. And I remember her saying, you were going to be incredibly ill over the holiday season. And I was like, well, well when does the holiday season start? She said, well, in you know, Thanksgiving. And I don't feel as ill as, as I'm supposed to. Um, and I can say that is through God's grace that, that I am like that. That, um, that he has given me the grace to be able to go through forward looking towards heaven, looking towards a day that I will be with him because he's promised that I will be with him. Because Jesus rose, I have the assurance of heaven. If Jesus didn't rise from where I'm standing, it would be the most frightening, terrifying thing in the world. But because Jesus rose, I am assured of heaven. Because Jesus rose and slapped death with everything he's got. Not with, not with fear, but with love. Because he did it for me and he did it for you. And because of that, he left a blazing trail for me that I don't have to walk in that darkness, that I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death because he has lit the way for me, that that is not a scary place to go at all. And I don't know that I will ever see my girls come to faith, but I know, I know and have every assurance that as long as he gives me breath and has numbered my days, he will do the same for them. He will bring them to a place with him. He will. And I know for certain he will. It might take them kicking and screaming and having me out of the way, but I would so much rather that I be out of the way so that he can be in the way for them. Because their salvation, their walk with God is far more important than their walk with me. And I just, I just, I need to say that, that we get so caught up in this life, in making sure our health is fine, in making sure everything around us is all okay. But do you know what? We're not taking these bodies with us. We need to make sure our spiritual, our spiritual body is okay because that's gonna be needed in heaven. I'm not gonna need this body. I'm gonna have a new body <laughs> that's gonna work just fine. I just wanna end with this. It's, um, it's Psalm 23. And a lot of you probably already know this. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me besides the still waters, and he restores my soul. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. And he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they do comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup, my cup, it overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I know that I shall dwell, that I shall dwell, that I shall dwell up there in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. That's living for the reward. All of us, not just Terry, will stand before Jesus eventually. She just gets to do it probably sooner than the rest of us. And I don't know how you imagine that day to be, but I can imagine what I, what I want is for Jesus to look at me in the face and say, Chris, well done. Well done. If he says that and I hear that, then all of the suffering and the pain and the sacrifice and the cancer will fade into nothing. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Lord Jesus, thank you. For the reward that we have, thank you that we need not walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. Thank you for giving us glimpses of the other side. Lord Jesus, may we live deliberately and intentionally starting out in the year 2015 in light of the reward. For your glory, I pray. Amen.